Good morning, my name is Phil Comstock. I'll be doing the scripture reading this morning. Our reading is from Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Well, good morning and welcome to Disciples Church. It is good uh, to see you this morning. Glad to have you with us and excited to open up the word with you this morning. My name is Jonathan Mosier uh, and it's my privilege to share uh, this morning's message. So turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We're closing in on the end of our series uh, in Ephesians. Um, in a couple of weeks, we'll begin a, a new series, and it'll be a, a series focusing on um, what the church is, what it is that we're called to do, how do we define what the church is, and how does that play out within the context of this uh, local congregation. So defining what it means to be a part of the church universal, to be part of the church historical as saints of God, and then also what does it mean to be a part of uh, this local congregation at Disciples Church. So we're excited uh, to dive into that, but excited as well to finish out our series in Ephesians. And if you've been with us, just to, uh, just to give a bit of background for anyone who hasn't been here, uh, as we've worked through this book, what we've really seen is two distinct pieces uh, in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 and 4 through 6. 1 through 3 is defining who you are in the eyes of God. For those of you who know Jesus Christ, if you've been redeemed by his blood, if you've experienced the salvation that God offers, who are you now in Christ? He defines our identity in him. And in chapters 4 through 6, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul says that we are, to, uh, we are to live worthy of the calling to which we are called, he begins to define how we live out of that new identity. That who you are informs the way that you live, that the way that you behave is informed by who God has made you to be. And in this particular section that we've been studying now for the last three weeks, beginning in Ephesians chapter 5, what we said is that all of this is dependent on the phraseology that Paul uses in Ephesians 5, I believe it's verse 18, where he says that we are not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And so if you were here, we talked about that idea that to be filled with the Spirit starts with looking to the cross. It starts with looking to the example of Jesus Christ who lived dependently on the Holy Spirit throughout the course of his life and then upon his ascension gave us the Holy Spirit who, who challenges us, who convicts us, who encourages us, who empowers us, who indwells us. The Holy Spirit is the motivator, the driver in our Christian life. And understand this, the Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's someone that we interact with. He's somebody that indwells us. And so Paul is now describing what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit throughout these various relationships in your life. And what he's encouraging us to do is hold up the gospel as a mirror to our lives. 
to view the gospel in a way that it begins to reveal the flaws and the areas of our life that have not been conformed to the power of the gospel and to allow that very same gospel, the person of Jesus Christ, through the work of Jesus Christ, through the application of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God the Father, to begin to allow those things to define who we are and what he's called us to be. And ultimately what he's calling us to realize is that Christianity is not limited to a time of the week or a facet of your life. That who you are and the faith that you claim to be is not separate, is not separate or divorced from the way that you live your life. That who you are informs those things. That Christianity has to be something that is all-encompassing. That that Jesus Christ will not be satisfied with simply being a spoke in the wheel of your life, but he demands to be the hub, that he has to be at the center, and that as Christ is at the center of your life, inevitably the gospel will work its way into every area of your life. So the call here is to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is not primarily an emotional experience, although certainly there is an emotional component to it, but what he's saying is that to be filled with the Holy Spirit bears itself out by a transformed life. In other words, as the catechism that we quoted together stated, the good works that we do and the way that we live our life bring nothing to our salvation, but they do serve as evidence that we've begun to be transformed into the image of Christ. They're a sign, a marker in our life that we no longer belong to ourselves, but that we belong to Jesus Christ. And so as we approach today's text, Paul is going to continue to narrow his focus. And this morning he's continuing on with the theme of how do spirit-filled people live in regard to their relationships. And so he's going to say, how can you approach your work in a Christian way? After addressing the family, after addressing husbands and wives and parents and children, he now extends this into our work life. And right off the bat as we read this, and even as we were reading it together this morning, there are all of a sudden all kinds of questions that pop into our minds. This text raises uncomfortable ideas for us, particularly in light of our own national history. Because you'll notice that Paul begins this instruction by addressing slaves and masters. Now the context for a passage like this is vital because the tendency that we have is to read our own national experience, our own historical experience into a passage like this, that we carry into a text like this the baggage of our own experience, or of our own nation's experience with slavery, and we begin to try to superimpose it on the text. But there's a whole lot of reasons that we can't do that, and I'm going to explain what some of those are. But in order to understand this text, we have to look at the broader context. See, historians would estimate that at this time in the history of the world, there were about 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. I mean, to put that into context, that means that about 35% of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. And in the large cities, cities like Rome and certainly cities like Ephesus as well, the numbers were exponentially higher. In the outskirted areas, you had people who were landowners, you had people who were free, but in the cities, you had a concentration of slaves. So much so that in a city like Rome, it's estimated that the predominant population of that city was actually made up of slaves. Now think about that. Think about living in a time where in the context of one city, an overwhelming portion of the population was in slavery. So for Paul to write what he writes in these verses is no small matter. Nor is he just acquiescing passively 
to the context in which he lives. But imagine the scope of this. If one-third of an entire empire's population is made up of slaves or bondservants, what that means is that that very same empire is economically and socially dependent on that system. I mean, this is a culture that is so built around slavery that it didn't even occur to people to view slavery as a problem. And these are not only domestic servants or manual laborers as we might think of them, but these servants, many of them were highly educated, often even educated beyond that of their masters. These people were not only manual laborers and and, and house servants, but they were doctors and teachers and administrators. They were accountants and people who ran numbers. I mean, the extent to which slavery dominated society was overwhelming. So much so that one historian, a man named William Westerman, wrote in his book, he said this, the institution of slavery was a fact of Mediterranean economic life so completely accepted as part of the labor structure of the time that one cannot correctly speak of the slave problem in antiquity. In other words, it's like asking a fish to describe water. What water? This is the whole of what we've known. This is the whole of our existence. Everything around us is built on the system of slavery. And so to consider that there would be any other system permissible was something that wasn't even a consideration for the people. But in addition to the different context that we find socially at that time, realize as well that slavery at this time was not primarily racial in culture. This wasn't the intentional enslavement of one particular people group. But slaves could be inherited. They could be purchased. The term bond servants, as many of our Bibles would translate it, the term bond servant is literally speaking to someone who sold themselves into slavery in order to pay back a debt. And in addition, there were prisoners of war, people who had stood against the empire who were forced into slavery. But what's remarkable about all of this, what's remarkable about this overall context with an uncomfortable topic, is that Paul's primary instruction was not to address the injustices of the system, though they certainly existed. But his purpose in writing this text was to instruct those who lived in this environment on their response. Now that shouldn't be surprising for us because remember where Paul is as he writes this. Paul is sitting in prison and he quite easily could have written to talk about the benefits of a, of a culture or a society that valued religious freedom and freedom of expression and all of those sorts of things, but instead he decides to write a letter to the church encouraging them on how they're to interact within the particular environments in which they find themselves. And so Paul's approach to this whole text can be seen in the fact that he writes to both slaves and masters. He's writing, them to, he's writing to these people together as part of the Christian community. So I mean, imagine sitting in a church service, hearing this letter read, where you had slaves and masters sitting directly next to each other. I mean, this is an odd thing. It's odd for us to wrap our minds around. It's odd for us to comprehend. But it brings into stark contrast what Paul writes in Galatians 3.28, where he says, There is neither no Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now what's Paul saying in that verse? Is he saying that there's no visible difference, that there's no practical distinction between these groups of people? Of course not. And we know that because in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul goes out of his way to address the fact that Jews, or that, that Greeks rather, Gentiles had been grafted into the family of God. In Ephesians chapter 5, he, he points out these distinctions between men and women and their roles within the context of marriage. 
In Ephesians chapter 6 here, he addresses slaves and free. So what is he saying? What he's saying is even though there are different roles and stations and sexes and ethnicities from which you come, you are equal in Jesus Christ. And so the question has often come back, is Paul in this text, is he advancing the cause of slavery? Is he allowing for slavery to continue to exist? And what I would say is that Paul's purpose in writing this was not to address those particular systems, but he also was not writing to validate slavery as a system. Nor was he saying that there wouldn't be a time for an abolition movement. I mean, Paul later in 1 Corinthians goes so far as to say to slaves, if you're able to get your freedom, you should go ahead and get it. And everything from the Imago Day to the Golden Rule screams that human beings are not property, but are people to be respected. But as Kevin Van Hooser writes in his commentary, he said the Bible in this passage sows the seeds of slavery's destruction. And Paul is saying, because of your new identity in Christ, living within this broader context, living within this system, what are you going to do tomorrow when you wake up? In whatever vein in which you find yourself, in this passage, whether slave or free, and you can begin to apply that to whatever context you find yourself in your own life, in the context of where you find yourself now with the system that's around you and the places you work and the people that surround you, how are you going to live as a Christian in that environment? How does the gospel shape the way that you interact right now? Now, all of that was just the introduction, so buckle up. So practically, what, is this, what does this mean for us? Well, the most obvious application is our work. So begin to look at verse 5 where he writes this. He says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now what's striking about this verse, as, as opposed to the verses that immediately preceded it, uh, is that Paul treats slavery and, and mastery, he treats these ideas very differently than how he treated marriage and parents. He doesn't view them the same way. He doesn't talk about them the same way. And what's interesting is that Paul does not ground this instruction in the Old Testament. If you look back at the previous verses in, verses, uh, in chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, where Paul addresses husbands and wives, what you see is that he immediately makes, makes an appeal to Genesis chapter 2. In other words, before sin had entered the world, in God's created order, he's saying there is a relationship that ought to happen between a husband and a wife where there is leadership and submission. And then he goes on to say in chapter 6 that nature itself teaches us that children ought to obey their parents. And beyond that, it's written in our hearts. But what you see is no common connection in this particular verse. He's not citing the Old Testament. He's not, cre- he's not citing the created order. Why? Because slavery inherent, inherently is not part of the created order. It was not how God created things to be. And if you note the use of the word master here, you'll notice that he, he uses this word and elsewhere in our text it's translated Lord. It's the same word, in fact, that's used to reference Jesus Christ as Lord, but he, he sets this word off masters here by the use of that particular word, earthly. In other words, what he's saying to slaves in this moment is there is a call to be obedient, there is a call to do the right thing, there's a call to work hard, 
but understand that you're doing that with your earthly masters. In other words, there is a far greater authority to whom we answer than just the people in our lives who hold authority, or in this context, to the, ma- than the far greater authority than the masters who oversaw the slaves. So how then are people to work? How are we called to work and to live out in our lives? And notice the use of the words he, he, he uses here. He says, with fear and with trembling. And here's why that's interesting, because in virtually every other translation of these, these exact same words, what you'll find is that these words are translated awe and wonder. In other words, there is a far greater authority, a far greater cause for our obedience, for our hard work, than just the situations and the particular places of employment that we find ourselves. That we are, we are not to be working with, interior, with ulterior motives, but we are to be working unto God himself. And so in doing this, here's what Paul's doing. He is blowing up the distinction between what is sacred and what is secular. And we have a tendency in our lives to split things into one of the two categories. We view our work as part of what we do secularly. We view Sunday morning as part of what we do that is sacred. We put our music into categories of sacred and secular. We put everything into our lives in one of those two buckets. And what Paul is saying is, for the Christian, those two buckets do not exist. That everything we do has a spiritual component, a spiritual impact. It has spiritual meaning. See, for the Christian, the way that you work is not disconnected from who you are as a believer. But the way that you work is born out of who God has created you to be, the way that he's designed you and wired you, and the places in which you find yourself. See, Paul's arguing here for an integrity in our work. And when I use that word integrity, I don't just mean honesty, although that's certainly a piece of it. But what I mean is that your faith is integrated with the way that you work. That by virtue of the way that you go about doing your job, there is something separate and different and set apart because you're doing that work unto God himself. Now now notice as he begins to break down how this this works itself out. Notice in verse 6. Not by the way of eye service. In other words, don't, don't work as eye pleasers where you're just doing something because somebody else is watching as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. And so the key phrase there is this phrase where he says, you are to do that work as to the Lord. Now here's what that means. What that means is that work is not incidental to your life. Work is not the enemy. Work is not the curse, even though we often view it that way. See, our typical view of work is that it's a means to an end, that it's something that we are doing so that we can afford the things in our life that we actually care about. And ultimately, the goal is retirement, where we no longer have to work, where we can just cut that whole part of our life out and enjoy what life is really about. But what What Paul is arguing in this text and what we see in the very created order itself is that we were beings intended and built to work. Do you understand that work is not a result of the fallen world in which we live? Work inherently was not the curse. What you find in Genesis chapter 2 is the first thing that happens with Adam after he's created is he's given work to do. He's given a job. He's, he's given this world to subdue. He's given the animals to name. He's given this garden to tend. That we are naturally people who are intended to create and cultivate 
I mean, I often think about this when I'm mowing my lawn. I, I look around at, uh, at my little parcel of land in Heartland and I, and I mow my yard and I look at when I'm done and I love the way that it looks and there's something within me that within this one very small aspect of my life is screaming out to be a cultivator. And I don't really have a green thumb, but this is just the one little thing that I like to do. Why? Because it, it gives me some sense of satisfaction. Some sense that I'm doing, at least in part, what I was wired to do. See, you were made in the image of a God who is a creator and a cultivator. Who loves to do those things. And because you were made in his image, we have that same desire wired within us. And what we realize when we start to understand those things is that work is inherently valuable, not just for the paycheck that it provides, not just for the way that we can support ourselves or our family, but that there is inherent value in work because it provides dignity. So I was reading on vacation a few weeks ago, I was reading the book Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott, who's an author, a writer, and she writes about writing. She writes about her writing process. It's a nerdy book, but it's really great. And she talks about this idea that, in part, what motivates her to write is, because, is that she knows she's good at it. Like, she's wired in such a way where writing for her is just something she enjoys doing. It's something about the way that she's wired and built, something about the way that God created her. And she talks about the fact that as she uses her gift, there is a sense of pleasure in doing what God has called her and enabled her to do. And as she's conveying this idea, she cites the story of Eric Liddell. If that name rings a bell for you, it's because there was a movie called Chariots of Fire that was based on his life. And Eric Liddell wanted to be, uh, wanted to be a missionary to China. He was a believer. He was a committed Christian. He, he wanted to give his life in service of the Lord. He, he wanted to serve people who didn't know the gospel and hadn't had an opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ. And so he had this strong desire to be a missionary. But he also had a desire to be a runner. And so as he was training for the Olympics, uh, Lamont shares the story that at one point his sister approached him and said, why don't you give up this running, give up the training, you should just go and be a missionary, do what God has called you to do. And Liddell replies in that moment that he wants to go to China because he feels that it's God's will for him, but that first he is going to train with all of his heart because God had also made him very, very fast. And what I love about that description is here's a person who recognizes that they have a particular skill set and a particular gifting, a way that they are constructed, and is saying, God has not accidentally given me the giftings that he has, the interests that you have, and the skill sets that you have, and the things that you enjoy are not accidental to your life, that God formed you in your mother's womb that he's given you passions and desires for particular things. And in working and in doing what God has called you to do with the skill sets you've been given, there is a sense of dignity that you experience and a sense of glory that is given to God. And if you don't believe me on that, all you have to do is talk to someone who has either avoided work or for reasons beyond their control been unable to work for a long period of time. And what you find in those people most often is a sense of restlessness and listlessness. After a long period of not working, there becomes kind of a sluggishness, a, a lack of desire to actually begin to move and do work. Or 
there's such a longing for meaning that people just can't sit still. Why is that? Why is it that if somebody is left in that state over time, they'll begin to feel a lack of worth? It's because work is a part of what we were wired to do. So work, on one hand, is not something to be avoided. It's not something to be ignored. It's not something to be despised. It's not a curse. But on the other hand, the fact that we are working as to the Lord also means that our work cannot be everything. And so for those of you who are saying, I don't have the first problem, I work incredibly hard. I work from the time that I get up to the time that I go to bed. I'm a workaholic. I don't know how to take a vacation. Understand that because of this passage, God is not allowing you to get off the hook. Because what he's saying is, is that you are also wired for more than work. That, a work is a, that your work is a piece of who you are created to be, but that it gives testament to something far deeper and far bigger. So while work can bring dignity, it cannot bring definition. It cannot define your life. It cannot make you inherently who you are created to be. And let me just make that case very easily. All it takes is one accident. All it takes is one injury. All it takes is one, one terrible circumstance for that job or that work to be ripped from your hands. And if you have defined yourself by your work, then you inherently will define yourself by your own ability to do that work and by your success in that work. And so what happens if you stop being successful? Or what happens if you don't attain the success that you set out to achieve? All of a sudden, who you are and what you've built your life around and what you've set your heart on has failed you. And you're left with no identity and no inherent meaning. But the reminder to work as to the Lord is a reminder that we have a greater master to whom we're accountable and a loving father for whom we live. So think about the context once again. Paul is writing this to slaves whose work ranged from the most menial tasks to the most vital tasks. And to work as to the Lord means that when you are cognizant of the fact that God created you and placed you, it doesn't matter if you're sorting widgets or if you're finalizing multi-million dollar deals for the Christian, your work is worship. And that means that no one's work is trivial. So C.S. Lewis wrote about this in one of his essays. In in particular, it was an essay that he wrote on church music, and he had this quote that you've probably heard before, but he said this. He says, For all our offerings, whether of music or martyrdom, are like the intrinsically worthless present of a child, which a father values indeed, but values only for the intention. Did you follow what he just said? He's saying, look, in every area of your life, whether it's music, something that we enjoy and something that we have fun doing, or whether it's martyrdom, literally the most serious thing one could imagine happening in their life, whether it's music or martyrdom, both are intended to be gifts to God, but what they are valued for inherently is their intention. Which means that your work has inherent value whether or not you see your work as meaningful. 
And imagine how this would have struck the ears of first century slaves working in Rome where they're saying, man, there's so many other things I might want to be in my life, so many other achievements uh, I'd want to engage in. There's all of these other passions and desires and pursuits that I have. What is this all about? And what Paul is saying is if your work is done unto the Lord, inherently it has value because just like, an, like a gift from a child to his father, the gift that you are offering up is valued immensely because of its intention. So what does this mean practically for us? What it means is that if you're stuck in a job that you hate, it doesn't mean you can't look for another job, but it means that your current work is not wasted. And he goes on to say, don't just work for for eye service. Don't work as a people pleaser where you're just trying to impress the boss when he or she comes around, where you're just trying to impress those whose opinion matters, where, where, where you only work hard if you know that your work is going to be checked. But he says, work hard, work honestly, knowing that God himself watches. You're doing it unto Christ. And look what he says now in verse 8 knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. That whatever recognition you receive for your work, if it's a bonus or if it's a raise or if it's a promotion, look, those are good things, but those are not the reason that we work hard and with integrity. But since we work as to the Lord, we are looking for our recognition and for our reward from him. And finally, he gives a word to masters. He says, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Now, much like we talked about in Ephesians chapter 5 with the, with the portion on husbands and wives, I mean, imagine how this would have struck the ears of first century slave owners who had the legal ability to do just about anything they wanted to do with their slaves. To those who had all sorts of legal protections to use their slaves in all sorts of ways, Paul says, stop threatening, work as to the Lord, and know that God is the one to whom you are ultimately accountable. I mean, for those those who have power, for those who have influence. What Paul is saying is use that power the way that Jesus used his power in the lives of those around him. Use that power to lift up and empower others, not to manipulate and control. See, the truth is there's only two options for how we use power. We either collect power where we value it so intently where we set so much of our focus and so much of our heart on it that we just want to gather and gain more power for ourselves and we use it for our own benefit. Or we use that power. We leverage it to serve and to care for others. And what Paul is indicating in this passage is that the gospel works regardless of the social structure in which you find yourself. And the beauty of this passage is that it paves the way for all kinds of social change and it paves the way for all kinds of uh, changes in the way that people treat one another. But the, the inherent message of this is that the gospel works. So as we look at a broken world all around us that needs all sorts of change, as we look at a broken humanity, as we look at the shooting that happened last night and, and another one earlier in this week, 
the reminder is that the ultimate answer to these problems is the gospel. Now, might there be other answers? Perhaps there is. And that's a worthy conversation to have at a separate point. But the final answer and the ultimate answer and the only answer that brings true, lasting change and hope is the gospel itself. It's the gospel itself that lights on fire the heart of one who uses their power to abuse abuse others, that transforms and changes the mentality of the way that we view ourselves in light of the gospel and therefore others in light of the gospel. And so what Paul is saying is that whether you're treated well or whether you're treated poorly, live in such a way that people see that you have a different master. So how do we do that? Certainly there's all kinds of practical applications and implications for these things. And I got a chance to visit um, the workplace of someone in our church a couple of weeks ago, and, and as we were uh, talking in their workplace and having a little bit of a conversation, it was funny because the people around, uh, around him that we had a chance to meet all, uh, all knew him as the Christian guy. Like he had enough freedom within the context of his workplace to have those conversations, and so people knew that the things that he valued were inherently different. So some of you have that opportunity, and if you have that opportunity, absolutely take advantage of it. But even if you work in a place where that sort of thing gets you fired, understand that there is a way to live and a way to work that brings honor and glory to God and gives a testimony to the way that you live your life. Gives a testimony rather to the hope that drives your life. So how do we do these things? Listen, outside of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you will be unable to view and engage in the work that you ought. Because if you do not know Jesus but are viewing this text in a very religious sense, the only thing that you're gonna be driven to do is work harder in whatever way that means in your own life. And what you'll begin to do without that relationship with Jesus Christ is you'll begin to live as a slave. Not literally and not with the the binds that would have been placed on these people, but you'll, you'll live as a slave, maybe not to an individual, but to the pressure of viewing work as an evil to be avoided or as a master to be assuaged where work becomes inconsequential in your life or work becomes everything in your life. And Jesus is inviting you to view your work differently. It's the reason that he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, that you will find in Jesus Christ an identity that is so complete in him, that so rests in what he's accomplished for you, that is so assured of its position because of the work of Jesus Christ, that you will therefore be free to work in whatever situation you find yourself, regardless of condition, and with absolute satisfaction that you have the approval of the Lord who matters most. So the invitation of this rather obscure text is to begin to view work not as incidental and not as ultimate but as a means of drawing glory to God in and through your life. Would we as believers be people who are marked by our understanding of the way that work not defines us but brings glory to our Father in heaven the master who deserves the credit and the honor. Let's pray. Father, I realize that this text is an obscure one. I realize that even in a sermon like this, it leaves all kinds of questions in our minds. And Lord, we thank you for other opportunities that we'll have to 
work through those questions and define those things, but Lord, I thank you most of all for what this passage says about you, that you are a good and loving master, that you see us not first as slaves, but as sons, as daughters, as children of God. And so, Lord, I pray that as we view our work and as we view our interactions in the workplace, that we would understand that those things neither define us nor are incidental to who we are, but that in that work we find dignity and we find, we find the way that it glorifies you when we use the skill sets that we've been given by you to work hard for you. So, Father, as we go to our homes and our work this coming week, by the power and promise of your Holy Spirit, Lord, we pray that you would open our ears to hear what you are saying to us in the things that happen and in the people that we meet. Pray that you'd open our eyes to see the needs of people around us. Open our hands to do our work well, to help when help is needed. Open our lips to tell others the good news of Jesus and bring comfort and and encouragement to other people. Open our minds to discover new truth about you and the world. Open our hearts to love you and our neighbors as you've loved us in Jesus. And it's in your most precious name that we pray. Amen.